0: okay let's try that again i think you can hear me better now uh thank you again for uh, bearing with me last week it was my i think second time in the pulpit uh this year and actually second time ever so thank you for bearing with me Uh, i'd like us to pray this morning before we begin and uh, in particular continue praying for our pastor steve let's pray heavenly father we're thankful for the opportunity to come to worship you today We thank you for the complete work on the cross that Christ has accomplished for us. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, who inhabits our hearts and influences us, uh, causing us to desire to uh, worship you and to abide in you. We continue to pray for our Pastor Steve this morning uh, as he overcomes the uh, affliction of the the Delta variety of the uh, COVID. Just pray, Lord, that you would help him to recover well and completely, and as Ruth ministers to him, as I also just uh, mourn the passing of Sarah Ann, also pray for the Reifingers this morning, uh, as we're now a couple weeks at the passing of uh, Dolores, and Lord, we rejoice though, as we said last week, that these two ladies are in your presence, uh, and they are fully experiencing the uh, beauty of their salvation. Also, thank you this morning for uh, Andrew and uh, Laura and the children in our presence today. We It's good to see them again and see family. So Lord, as uh, this message is uh, proclaimed, I pray that you would use it uh, to reach each person. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we examined chapter one of Ephesians, if you'll recall, and uh, we were reminded in Ephesians one, if you'd like to turn there, what I would call the divine architecture of our salvation. It includes each person of the Trinity, the Trinitarian God's work in predestination, in election, in adoption, and in our justification. Moreover, we were reminded last week that this remarkable picture of our identity is not divorced from the practical sanctification that will result from such divine initiative in our lives. We saw this as Paul expressed joy and thankfulness for the faith and the love that is evident in the lives of Ephesian believers and accordingly in our lives, hopefully, qualities that combined with biblical hope bring praise and glory to God. I'd like to actually take time to just reread chapter one. I'm going to actually get into chapter two today. but I'd like to remind us, repetition's the key in learning. Let's go back and read Ephesians one and revisit some of these themes. Just as I've read that summary, just be thinking to yourself some of these themes we talked about last week. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first person of the Trinity, right? Who has blessed us in Christ, the second person, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, here it is, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him and of course that's that uh, identity that we have in Christ because the righteousness we have has been imputed to us and then there's the practical outworking of that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according again to the purpose of his will Notice the divine initiative here. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, the Father. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he, love the verb, lavished upon us. Not, not a certain, just a little bit, but a lot. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Again, the divine initiative, the divine purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And now the next three verses, we're gonna be reminded of the role of the Holy Spirit. In him we have obtained an inheritance, certainly Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, the Father, so that we are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, we all had to hear the word proclaimed, the gospel of your salvation, the good news. And we believed in him, right? But again, believing is not an attribute that earns us anything here. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire, and I would inject the word here, full possession of it our salvation to the praise of his glory and notice it ends on where we all need to focus as christians it's all to the praise of god's glory so that entire what i would call again sort of the architecture of our salvation these different terms that we see is god's plan it's trinitarian it's father son it's holy spirit acting together Now i don't know about you but when i go from chapter one to chapter two we go from the, this sort of glorious picture of our salvation. We have to transition to the necessity of seeing who we are without Christ. And that's what Ephesians 2 is going to talk about. It's a reminder to believers of our, what I would call, pre-regenerate state of decadence. We're decadent, we're, we're sinners. And it's not something uh, that's easy for us to hear, but we have to hear what it tells us, what the scripture tells us. It's quite a contrast, I would say, to what we see in Ephesians chapter one. I thought it might be helpful this morning just to think about the different ways that people down through the history of the church and outside of the church have thought of the way we regard mankind. How do we look at human beings? One individual uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of is Rousseau, the great philosopher who actually uh, had an influence on the American Revolution. Rousseau had a belief that that people were noble savages, that it's society that corrupts us. It's not we're born evil, we're born with a sin nature, it's society that corrupts us. And of course we acquired a lot of influence from Rousseau even in the Declaration of Independence, our documents and in early American history and yet his view of mankind was skewed. My mother uh, actually grew up in a church referred to as the Christian Science Church. You may have heard of it before. I remember my mother telling me when I was growing up, and I don't believe she was a Christian at the time, although she died a believer. She said, oh, she said, all evil, I learned, is is just an illusion. It's not really evil. You just educate yourself out of this evil. And if you read any of Mary Baker Eddy's documents, that's exactly what she believed, that evil is an illusion. It's not real. But we know as Christians it certainly is. There are a couple of views in Christian history that I think corrupt what the actual biblical view is of the fall. One is by a monk, and I trace this back uh, in my reading a little bit to the fourth, century, fourth or fifth century, a man named Pelagius. And Pelagius believed basically man is basically good and unaffected by the fall. Adam's fall had no influence on mankind. We also hear a term called semi-Pelagianism, that man may, while we're affected and tainted by the fall, Man can still choose God despite being tainted with sin. We have the capacity of pursuing God and choosing or rejecting him. And I think it's sorry to say, but I think it's the dominant view that we have among many Christians nowadays, that there's just a little bit that we have to do to make Christianity palatable. And I think probably many of us know that during the biblical times there was a philosophy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that yes, the body is evil, But the spirit's good. The things of the spirit are good. It's our bodies that are evil. And I think scripture teaches us contrary to that, that our entire being has been affected and infected by sin. Some even went as far as to say Jesus Christ couldn't have been a man because the Gnostics believe if he became a man, he would have taken on this this evil form of of humanity. Uh, That couldn't be. The scripture teaches otherwise. He did come in the flesh and did not sin. So, again, the body and the spirit, apart from Christ, that is, our bodies and spirits have been affected and infected by sin. So, again, this is a stark contrast to what we've heard in chapter 1, where we get a wonderful view of who we are as believers. We're redeemed. We're inhabited by the Holy Spirit. We are elect. We are predestined. We're adopted. We're regenerate. And many people don't like to hear those terms because they say, well, do we have to inject all this theology into our thinking just love jesus i think we do need to have a good understanding theologically of who we are as believers and of course prior to our believing as unbelievers so i'm going to begin in chapter two and i'd like to tackle the first 10 verses this morning and take a look at these verses again uh, i think we'll see in them the work of the trinity the full work of the trinity father son and holy spirit rescuing us from whom we were Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you you once walked. That's a pretty startling verse if you think about it. We end chapter 1 with talking about the glory of God and all the things that we are doing to glorify God, and suddenly in chapter 2, verse (laughs) 1, the startling statement we're dead, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. I, lo- I love to hear that term trespasses because it has the idea of us actively violating God's law and our sins in once you once walked. I'd like to remind you from Galatians chapter 5, which often is referenced as the chapter of the fruit of the Spirit, and it's a beautiful chapter. But also it tells us what it looks like when we talk about the unregenerate man. So I'm going to look at verse 16 and go through verse 21. Again, I'm gonna try to keep my voice elevated here. Uh, I'm a little quieter in my speaking, so I'll try to keep my voice elevated. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, what are the desires of the flesh? What are the sins that we once lived in that preoccupied us? Here they are, some of them, certainly not an exhaustive list. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now here are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, we always think of that one, don't we? Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, having idols in our lives, sorcery. I don't know anyone here practices witchcraft, right? So we look at these first five and we say, aren't we rescued from this? But then they started getting pretty personal, don't they, to us? Enmity, hatred. Strife, those who like to put one group against another. Here's one that hits home with all of us. Jealousy. How many of us have not been jealous this week of somebody else's gifting? Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions and divisions. This one hits everybody. Envy. Envy drunkenness orgies and things like these certainly not an exhaustive list but enough to (laughs) condemn us right apart from Christ I warn you Paul says as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God and again I think this is an unbroken lifestyle an unrepentant lifestyle all of us would say we struggle with some of these sins but it's an ongoing effort we have to keep confessing them they're under the blood They're taken care of legally at the cross, but on a daily basis, we have to continually confess them, don't we? And we'll be doing that this morning as we look toward communion. So again, verse one. You are dead in trespasses and sins. A dead person does not breathe. A dead person has no will. A dead person is without spiritual life. The old illustration used to be throw the life raft out to the, 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 the dying, the problem with that is there's nobody that can grasp onto that life raft, right? Can grasp onto that because we're dead in our sins prior to our conversion. So we're told we once walked in this following the course of the world. And all of us can look at that list of sins that are cataloged here and say, okay, check that one. Okay, not so much that one. But again, if we've broken one of the law, we've broken the entire law, right? Following the course of this world Now, on your table this morning, I actually put uh, in front of each of you uh, a picture of the uh, Temple of Diana. And if you take a look at that for a second, it was a pretty marvelous structure. The people of Ephesus were obsessed with worshiping here. They were preoccupied with it. It became uh, an obsession. It's whom they worshiped. And we, of course, in our culture have the same temptation to follow idols, don't we? whatever they might be, idols of the mind, idols of sight, idols that might be having enough money, keeping up with the Joneses, whatever it might be. They were facing terrible temptations, were they not? And if you look at that temple, that's illustrative of what the Ephesians were dealing with. And I'm sure Ephesian believers, those who became believers in Christ, probably continued to struggle with this temptation. You followed the prince of the power of the air, a reference, I think, to Satan here the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I don't think you can take those two verses and diminish the description of who we were prior to our conversion. It's true, many were probably converted earlier in life, maybe didn't go through many of these, this catalog of sins we've seen today. But nevertheless, we all, to one degree or another, have been part of this following the course of this world, not following Christ. Among whom we all, that's, I remember a pastor, Linda and I used to have in Lynchburg, Virginia, who would say, A double L all, Jerry Falwell by name. We once lived in the passions of our flesh, each one of us, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Notice here, sin is not restricted to bodily sin, but the mind. As I said earlier, the Gnostics made the mistake of thinking that sin was just a bodily thing and that the purity of the spirit, but no, not at all here. The mind part of the spirit, that is also affected by sin. And we were by nature children of wrath. Whose wrath? The wrath of God. We were all by nature children of wrath. I would encourage you, as it mentions, like the rest of mankind, When you see people around you who are unbelievers, and we are tempted to say, well, that's not us. We don't act like that, we don't do those things, we don't think that way. Just remember that we were rescued from that life by the triune God whom we love, who gave us his spirit to reside in us, to change us and transform us. That our righteousness is imputed to us, it's given to us, it's a gift, And likewise, our sins are given to Christ, placed on him. And the holy, loving Father has seen fit to put all this into action from time immemorial. So we don't have anything to brag about. When we look at the unbeliever, it's as if we say to ourselves, I remember in college I had a gentleman, part of a Christian youth group, who would tell us we're just like one beggar telling another beggar where he or she can find bread. It really is true. We have nothing to exalt ourselves. Instead, we exalt in Christ and we remind ourselves of this, while our identity of Ephesians 1 is glorious, at the same time, our pre-regenerate identity is embarrassing, isn't it? It's because we violated the sanctions of a holy God. And here's the transitional word. Verse 4, this is where the, uh, the rescue comes. But God, being rich in mercy, once again, lavished upon us so many blessings, the greatest of which is rescuing us from ourselves. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Don't underestimate that clause there. Because of the great love with which he loved us. We can't even begin to fathom how great the love of God is for us. We look at human love horizontally, don't we? and we measure how much one loves another. Perhaps even the church, you know, how much do we love other people? Are we loving those as much as we should? Probably not, because we're still struggling with that sinful nature, right? Even though we're redeemed. But God's love is immeasurable here. And being so rich in mercy, get this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not wounded, not sick, not ailing, but dead in our trespasses. No desire for God. Now, many have contested this, saying, well, I've met people who, you know, they're kind of moving toward God, and they think, well, I'm thinking about God. But I have to ask this, where in Scripture do we see that we are pursuing God? There may be a form of God people are looking at. I don't know that it's the biblical God. And of course, also, it might be that the Spirit is at work in their hearts. We just have to be careful to remind ourselves if they are showing any desire for God, it's because God has put that desire there and is probably working in their lives. But we have to be careful about this. We are dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. Not just alive, but alive in Christ, our elder brother in the faith. And here's that beautiful part, by grace you have been saved, set off in my Bible by dashes, parenthetically here, and raised us with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know that all of us, if we think biblically about Christ, we should we should in our minds have the vision that Christ is at the right hand of the Father intervening for us. And in this sense, we are seated with him spiritually. We will be fully in the existence, and of course we are in the existence. The Trinity sees us each day. We are in the existence of God. But we will experience the fullness of that Trinitarian relationship when we are with the Lord. And we've had people in our church and others who have passed to that very relationship. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I find myself often thinking about God's love for us, and again, I've alluded to this already, but I just don't think as humans we fully appreciate and understand what God has done for us. It requires me, I don't know about you, to look back into Ephesians chapter one and revisit and remind myself, how much has God loved me? Because during a normal day of the week, I tend to start measuring my love for God by, well, how much am I doing for him today? What am I doing to serve God? But we have to remind ourselves of the indicatives of who we are because of what Christ has done for us, because of what the Father has done for us, because of what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing for us, each of those persons of the Trinity. Verses eight through 10, if you've memorized any Bible verses, probably are ones that you're very familiar with and perhaps you've committed to memory. The word for means because. It's it's a transitional word. For by grace you have been saved. That's a present perfect reality. Have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Now, there's been much discussion among Christians as to what this refers to. Is this referring to grace? Is this referring to faith? I think we have to take the stance that at least includes both grace and faith. Many have taken it upon themselves to say, well, yes, God gives us His grace, but the faith is our part of this equation. I don't think that's a biblical view of the, of the reality of faith being a gift from God itself. Not just grace, but faith itself being a gift, something we cannot work up to, something we cannot generate by some divine spark in our lives. But faith itself is what theologians would call, I believe, an evangelical grace. Something given to us that we do not deserve. And this is not your own doing. It, again, referring back, I believe, to both grace and faith, at the very least, is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast if we boast in anything we should boast in our savior jesus christ in our salvation not we've what we've done to accomplish it not how much god is even working in our lives well that's a worthy thing to think upon but rather we need to boast in god elevate god he is the what the begin he he, he began our salvation he's going to bring it to a completion the alpha the omega the beginner of our faith, the author of our faith, the finisher of our faith. We dare not rely upon our own strength. I like actually what I've heard a few people say about the idea of the perseverance of the saints. We we as Christians here at uh, Redeeming Grace Baptist, we would probably call ourselves Reformed in our views. We would certainly not embrace everything that Reformed theology uh, believes as far as Presbyterians. We baptize adults, for instance, when we baptize. But I think the idea here is we take the view that God has been, is the divine author of our faith, that he is the one who initiates it and brings it to completion. And I think rather than saying the perseverance of the saints, I like the idea, the preservation of the saints. Perseverance, I think, puts a little too much emphasis on what do we do. Preservation is God is preserving us in the faith. He is actively keeping us from being torn asunder from our faith. Do we go through valleys, hills and valleys, like uh, I think uh, Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, Christians? Certainly we do. But the difference being that if we're truly Christians, we'll repent of the sins that we commit and return to God. Again, not because of anything naturally in ourselves, but because the spirit is drawing us back, using the word of God to convict us as he will this morning, I'm sure, before we go to communion and drawing us back to him so he might preserve us in the faith. Verse 10 is one that often gets dislocated from verse nine. We hear a lot of talk about "Is by grace you've been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one should boast. And often people will say, well, that just shows you salvation's by faith and works have nothing to do with it. And what I would say is this, it's true. We are saved by faith alone, absolutely. But it is, not, it is a faith that works if it's a true faith. Because the word faith in our culture has become sort of a wax nose. You make it whatever you want it to mean. Uh, you just gotta have faith. We, we hope something will happen. Those are not biblical definitions of faith or hope. Faith, hope is the assurance of what we believe. Faith is we have confidence in the one we have believed. And I would also say that when we say faith saves us, we need to be careful. It's Christ who saves us. Faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of Christ. It's a gift given to us, but faith does not literally save us. It's Christ, Christ where he's accomplished on on the cross. And that faith, of course, that we put in him, a gift from God, is the instrument by which we lay hold of Christ. Verse 10, Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There it is. Part of his predestining plan is that not only we would be saved through faith, but that we would exhibit good works. And look at this. Which God prepared beforehand, divinely ordained for each one of us, that we should walk in them. Now, it's nice to hear that, but I think it's another thing to think, what's that mean? What are good works? Let me refer back to that same passage in Galatians that I referred to earlier to catalog the sins of the flesh. If you'll turn back there for a second to chapter 5, let's look at verses 22 through 24. We'll go actually through 25 and 26 as well. Starting with verse 22, right on the heels of being warned that those who do such things such as live like in in envy and jealousy, fits of anger, make a lifestyle of this, an unbroken lifestyle, look at the contrast. But the fruit, again it's not plural, the fruit of the Spirit, but it's manifested in plurality. It's, It's singularity and plurality here. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and every Christian to one degree or another should be exhibiting these, this fruit of the Spirit, which I think illustrates itself in good works or exhibits itself in good works. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I believe there are nine of them. I could be wrong. Against such things there is no law. And I think this is the Christian lifestyle. We will manifest these qualities, hopefully, increasingly, if we're regenerate people. Will we still struggle with the sins of the flesh? Absolutely. I've read those before, I don't need to reiterate them, but look back at them in verse 18 through 21. Any of us would be a liar to say that on a daily basis we don't struggle with, for example, perhaps jealousy, divisions, even idolatry, lust, whatever it might be. But we need to confess those to the Lord. That is the difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate. The unregenerate has no desire to confess those things. The regenerate should have the desire to confess these sins. But look back at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Put them to death the illustration i've heard it's very helpful for me is when we're tempted to sin remember each time we do we're letting that old man or old woman get back out of the grave and try to control our lives again the the image of baptism we have i think as baptists we go down into the water and come back up it doesn't save us as some brethren would say but rather it's the putting off of the old man or woman and putting on the new identity of christ I think that's what's pictured here. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. And we have to, that's an ongoing daily battle we have to fight, isn't it? It's not one time. I would say this. We all know here that justification is a one-time declaration. Sanctification is an ongoing cooperative effort between the Spirit of God and and our spirit but only because we desire to do that, because we're born anew. And then verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. See, it's making the admission, Christians, believers can still struggle, becoming conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. So there's that concession. And we all know 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and forgive us. I'm butchering the verse. Let me just go to it. It's amazing how you can memorize something and then when you're up in front of people, suddenly it can depart from you. First John 1.9. In the version I'm reading out of, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And let me add to that. It is the part and parcel of our culture today for people to say, well, I can't forgive myself. We're never called upon to forgive ourselves. We're called upon to admit that we're sinners and kneel at the feet of our Savior and say, Lord, forgive us, I can't forgive myself. Please forgive me of this sin. And it may involve going to others at the same time, horizontally speaking. One final verse I'd like to look at in Matthew 5, 16. I'm reminded of this when we talk about good works and the relationship to faith because I think there is a faith that doesn't save. It tells us in scripture the devils believe. (laughs) They're not believers. They they know who God is. There is a non-saving faith, but biblical saving faith is one that transforms, that gives us the desire to obey God. And we'll never do it perfectly in this life, but again, there's that, 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 that desire to obey. Verse 16, I'm going to read from 14 you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a Lamp and put it under a blanket Basket excuse me, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to not you But your father in heaven as steve has pointed out to us this sermon in the Sermon on the Mount illustrates We can't do that We're We're utterly failures But as Christians now transformed and given God's spirit, not apart from his spirit, we have the ability to exhibit or manifest those works. But again, I ask you, why is it? Is it so I can say, look at me, look at me? Or is it because I wanna glorify God? Now I remind you that we all are sinners still and have mixed motives. We're never going to have, I believe, pure motives on this side of eternity. It's the idea that our desire is to to glorify God, even if it is an admixture of glorifying self. And we have to confess that when we know it. Well, as we finish this morning, I hope this has been a good uh, reminder to you of who we are as believers. We are gloriously equipped by God, not because of our goodness, but we're given his Holy Spirit to wrestle with sin, to sanctify us, to bring us to holiness. We have been adopted, predestined. We have been regenerated, not because of what we've done, but because of the work of the Spirit. We have been redeemed at the cross by Christ, given his righteousness that we could not earn. And now we live lives where we attempt to obey God in practical sanctification, knowing that glorification awaits us. Where there will be no more desire, no more desire to sin or disobey the Lord. Before we go to communion this morning, let us pray. Heavenly Father, these passages uh, it, it are startling. We, as Steve has mentioned to us, we learn in the contrast. We are given in one chapter the beauty of who we are as believers. Even Paul remarks that he is so joyful that the believers in Ephesus, their faith and their lives are resonating, that he's hearing about their obedience and he is so expressive of his appreciation for this, not because of what the believers do on their own, but because they're inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. At the same time, chapter two, Lord reminds us that we are still frail people lest we think we do not need your spirit to inhabit us. We sin daily. So this morning, I'd like each of us to take just a few moments before we go to the singing and the communion service between yourself and God to just confess in this time of preparation for communion. Lord, you have reminded us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us. As we prepare to go to communion, Holy Communion this morning, as we sing these songs, and we partake of the elements, the bread, and either it be the wine or the grape juice, we're thankful that our relationship with you has been established by an unerring Trinitarian God. Lord, thank you for this reality in our lives. If there be any here this morning who do not know you, who are listening this morning uh, to the broadcast, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.